If you have your Bibles, we're going to be studying in Mark chapter 8. So turn to Mark chapter 8, verses 20 through 26. And as you're finding your spot, uh, Bob asked me just to give a little bit of background about what I'm doing, where I am, a little bit of a personal introduction here. Uh, Somebody asked me when I came in, which of those halls are you? So I'll explain that. My grandfather, Gardner Hall Sr., preached many years in Birmingham, and some of you knew him. I've already met some of you that knew him. And he was in North Birmingham in the 30s, where my dad was born. He was in Bessemer in the 50s, Midfield in the 60s. So I remember a lot of going to see my grandparents here. Of course, my dad is Sewell Hall. He's in Atlanta now, but he preached at North Birmingham in the mid-60s. So I grew up in uh, North Birmingham. Went to school at F.D. MacArthur Elementary School. I went by there a year ago, and it doesn't look very good around there in Caraway Hospital, but that was a thriving community back in the 60s. Uh, so um, my uncle is Bill Hall. I think he may be more well-known among some of you than some of my other uh, family members. But um, since leaving, when left, leaving Birmingham, it was raised primarily in Athens up in North Alabama. Then I um, then, uh, lived a couple of years in Kentucky, a couple of years in Argentina, and ever since then we've been in Yankee land in New Jersey. Uh, worked with two congregations. I worked primarily in Spanish. This, that's something I decided I wanted to do, learn Spanish. So I preach, uh, work with several different congregations. The main two I go to every Sunday are one are West Harlem. That's in New York City, 139th Street. If you're visiting there on Sundays, come see us. It's a neighborhood congregation. You'll, you'll, you'll enjoy the experience. That's a bilingual church, English and Spanish, West Harlem. We have about 50 there most Sunday mornings. Then on uh, Sunday afternoons, I go to the Spanish-speaking congregation in Fairlawn, New Jersey. That's about 12 miles from New York City. We have about 75 Spanish-speaking brethren there. there. So um, love to come back to Alabama and recharge my southern batteries, especially today. My wife said they had five inches of snow last night. Well, I kind of miss the snow. I guess I was raised in Alabama enough that I like snow. To me, snow means you get out of school. That's, that's what it means to me. But I've been looking forward to this meeting, getting back to Birmingham. And I know that I know a lot of you help me out a little bit with some background of where I saw you before or, or family or something like that. But it'll be enjoyable this week to get up to uh, get up to speed on some of those memories that we have. Well, there's some text in the Bible that we read and we kind of makes us scratch our heads. I remember the first time that I tried to really get a handle on this text in Mark chapter 8. I read it and I said, did that say what I thought it said? Well, go back and read it again. It did say what I thought it said. Well, what's, what's this all about? You'll see what we mean as we go back over this text. You only find this story in the book of Mark, not in Matthew, not in John, uh, nor in Luke. Let's read the text first. We'll go back and point out a few things in it, and then we're going to get to the most difficult part of it. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Then he, of course, we're speaking of Jesus here, came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and 
begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Well, let's go back and look a little bit at, at, at what we just read. He came to Bethsaida, uh, or Bethsaida, some say. This is a town on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, very close to Capernaum. If you can make it out, I need to get probably higher resolution picture next time. But very close to Capernaum, it looks like that Peter not only had a house in Capernaum, but also one in Bethsaida. You can see why they're very close to each other. And also these, uh, Andrew, uh, Philip and Andrew are said to have been from Bethsaida. Might it have looked something like that? This is what it looks like today. There's the main street in Bethsaida. And here's something that grabs people's attention. This is a ruins of a house where they found a lot of accoutrements that go with fishing. And of course, we know what Peter and uh, his companions did. So that's Bethsaida. He led them out of town. They're going to do a miracle on the blind man. It's interesting how much they wanted Jesus to see him and help him. Perhaps they had known him from his youth. How badly do we want our friends to see Jesus? How badly do we want them to be healed by him? My wife has lupus. She had a bad spell of it back in the 1990s and uh, went to first one doctor, then the other, and nobody was really giving her, I think, the, the necessary attention. And of all things, we went to gastroenterologists. It was the first one said, I am going to help you. You don't think of gastroenterologists with lupus. But she took her under arms, found probably one of the best gastroenterologists in the state of New well, in the country, a pioneer in the research, and got him to help Beverly. And Beverly's lupus is very well under control. But a few years later, my parents moved to New York City. And one day, my mother said, do you all know a gastroenterologist here? Yes. How happy we were to recommend that doctor who'd help Beverly so much to my mother. How much do we want to recommend Jesus to our friends who so badly need him? Let him out of town. This is a period in Jesus' ministry when he was inundated with people, probably to get him away, to perform the miracle. Jesus wanted there to be witnesses to what was happening so that later at the appropriate time they could testify it. He spit on his eyes. He did what? Why did he do that? If you know, I wish you would tell me as, we, as you left here this morning. We don't know. It does remind you of John chapter 9 where Jesus made clay out of spittle to put in the blind man's eyes. And he put his hands on him. But here's what really grabs our attention. He put his hands on him. He looked up. I see men like trees walking. Have you ever tried to picture what that would be like? Men like trees. Something like that. Special forces character? I don't know. There's a movie character. He had, I'm sure the blind man had felt of trees. He knew what they would look like if he could have seen men like trees walking. 
Well, let's go on and read verses 25 and 26. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Why is this text so difficult? Pretty straightforward story. Why did Jesus use two steps to heal the man? This is the only miracle I can think of that was done this way. Why? Was it that he messed up the first time? And Well, I can, I can do it better the second time. No. We're talking the Son of God here. He's not going to mess anything up. You know, have you ever had this happen? Do you have a problem with your car? And you take it to the mechanic and he kind of doesn't know what to do. Well, let's try this. Nothing changed. Well, let's try this. It may take him four or five times before he finally gets it right. Is that what's going on here? Sometimes we make a point with our friends who claim that they see and work modern day miracles. And we'll say to them, if a miracle is not complete, if a miracle is not 100%, it's not a miracle. I had a friend in Kentucky who believed that in miraculous gifts today, and he was a photographer, and I went to his studio, and he had one of the nastiest colds that I've ever seen. I've seen a lot of them lately, the last few days, but the coughing, and I'm not going to get into all of that. He had a bad cold. Wow, I told him, you've got a bad cold. It's almost like Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas. No, I do not have a cold. <laughs> well, I feel like the prophet in ways. They're saying, what about the lowing of the oxen and the bleeding of the sheep? What's all the coughing in the... What's all that about? That's not a cold. That's just Satan trying to make me think I have a cold. I was healed yesterday. This is just Satan trying to make me think I have one. And I made the point. Look, if you were healed miraculously yesterday, you would not be coughing and sneezing and having all the symptoms of a cold today. But what do we have here? What do we have here? So often, when we have a passage, it's a little bit of a head-scratcher. The explanation comes by looking at the context, what comes before and what comes afterwards. All through chapter 8 of Mark, and really you could say a good portion of chapter 9, the apostles are showing that they had distorted spiritual vision. They saw some things, they had some faith. But it wasn't a clear faith, and they didn't see clearly. And you can almost say the whole context is imperfect spiritual vision. I'll show you what I'm talking about. They're worried about food in the first part of the chapter. Verses 13 and 14. They're getting into the boat. He left them, getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. What on earth are we going to eat? One loaf? Somebody's going to go hungry and they're worried about it. You know, I doubt many of us have ever had to worry about whether we're going to eat or not. I'll tell you a couple of stories. When I was a little boy, my family lived in Nigeria, in Africa. We lived in the tropical rainforest of the south. 
And the custom among British then, the British doctor says, you've got to get away once a year from the rain, the, the tropics. And there was a place in northern Nigeria called Josh, up on the plateau, which had a very temperate climate. So it was customary for all who were in the uh, tropical forest to drive up to Josh and get a little relaxation in the cool weather. So mother and dad, we're going to go up to Josh. But the only problem is you had to cross a rather large expanse of desert and just a little, little road that you can kind of see where other cars had been. Somebody says, you better go prepared. So they bought a big 10-gallon container of water. And uh, that was in case something went wrong in the middle of the desert. We would have at least the water till hopefully help would, would, would arrive. So we got to the edge of the desert. We started taking off across the desert towards Joss. And after about an hour, about a six or seven hour drive, my mom said, let me get some water for the kids. So you went back to the tin water. It had all leaked out. There was no water. There in the middle of the desert. Well, obviously, we survived because I'm here talking to you this morning. But there was concern about water. What are we going to drink? I have a friend from New York City named Alejandro. He's from the Dominican Republic. He told me one time about being dropped off with a group of men in a pickup truck in a very remote part of the island, a national forest. They were supposed to work there three or four days there in the National Forest, and then the tr- pickup truck would come back and pick them up and take them out. Well, the pickup truck dropped them off. They got, gather all their tools together, by to the driver, and as he's going down the road, these are the pre-cell phone days, uh, you brought the food, didn't you? I thought you brought the food. Nobody brought any food? Three days before the truck comes back? Jungle survival. Jungle survival. Worry about food. Did you bring any food? We only have one loaf of bread. Worry about food. Jesus is concerned about something else. Then he charged them saying, Take heed. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What's Jesus thinking about here? Spiritual dangers represented by the Pharisees and by Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. What are they doing? They're automatically thinking physical. When Jesus had in mind spiritual, don't we often fall into that trap today? The kingdom of God. What do some people automatically think when hearing that phrase? Kingdom of God. Some kind of earthly political kingdom. When Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Give, and it will be given unto you. How many scoundrels have taken that passage and made people believe, boy, if I give $100, I'll get $700 back. Automatically thinking physical. They had distorted spiritual vision. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Notice here, notice the phrase, Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? 
And do you not remember having eyes? Do you not see? He goes on and tries to reason with them. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said, seven. So he said to them, how is it that you do not understand? Jesus had just fed 5,000 people and then closely after that, 4,000. Was he going to let them starve? They didn't even think of that. Did they see? Did the apostles see? Kinda. Kinda. They saw enough to leave everything to follow Jesus. That's the most important thing. But how imperfect their vision was. What did they need? They needed to see more clearly. Peter illustrates this point with his poor vision. Uh, Jesus said something he did not like. Peter did not like. In, in, in chapter 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Well, that didn't make any sense at all to Peter. He had just confessed in verse 29 that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. How is that going to happen to him? Jesus spoke back to Peter. Peter spoke the word openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus, I'm going to get that right. Jesus spoke the word openly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. Did Peter see? Kinda. What did Peter see? It's as if he saw men like trees walking. He saw very imperfectly. One more illustration of this point. The poor division of the disciples. When Jesus came down from the mountain, they were unable to heal a demon-possessed boy. And uh, so Jesus rebuked them. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the young man to Jesus. And Jesus began to talk uh, to the, the father. And the father, if you can, if you will, you can make my son well. Of course, it wasn't a matter if Jesus could or not. Jesus said, uh, with belief, it's possible. And then how did the man respond? I believe, help my unbelief. You could change it up just a little bit. I see, help me where I don't see. You know, when you see these examples, I think that meaning of the healing in two touches becomes a little more clear in our mind. Here's the point Jesus was making. Spiritual healing is often accomplished in more than one step. An individual may come to believe partially, but he needs to keep going back to Jesus for further touches to be healed completely. The problem is, is sometimes we're satisfied 
with impartial, one-touch type of spiritual healing. You know, this blind man, think of his situation. He had seen nothing for years. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes and spits into his eyes in the world of color. Something he had never observed before begins to fill his eyes and his brain. And there's color and there's light. It's a wonderful, amazing thing. He might have been tempted to say, you know, these fellows do look like trees, but it's just so much better than it was. I'm just not going to say anything. Thankfully, he didn't do that. He was not satisfied. And Jesus wanted something better for him. Jesus wanted complete 2020 spiritual vision for his apostles. Just he wanted 2020 physical vision for him. That's the way it was with the apostles. And here comes the applications. Isn't it that way with us? We see. If you didn't see something, you would not be here this morning. You saw something that made you want to come. What are some applications we can make from this? We hear testimonials from our friends that go a lot something like this. You know, I was a mess. I was involved in drugs. I was an alcoholic. My family wouldn't have wanted to have nothing to do with me. Then I accepted Christ as my personal Savior, and He freed me from all those problems, and now life is just wonderful in Christ. And yet, as our friend is telling us that, we know that there's still some problems. We know perhaps they give their ties or allegiance to places where the Bible's not really followed very carefully. Where the conditions of salvation, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved, will never be taught. And the simple type of worship that God has commanded of his people is overlooked. And it's a lot of what we call in the Bible class, entertainment-oriented worship. And there are the titles for the preachers, the reverend and the most reverend and all of this. And we think, you know, his, his testimonial is impressive. And our friends think that life is marvelous, and indeed it is marvelous for them compared to the way it was before them. A hundred times better. They see maybe men walking like trees, but they see. And often I haven't known how to respond to my friends when they give me this type of a testimonial. They're so happy. They're so enthusiastic. I don't want to take a bucket of cold water and... Dump it on them and all their enthusiasm, and yet something is lacking. Complete submission to Christ. I think this is a good passage to go to when we have friends who want to give us their testimonials of that type. I think we need to rejoice with them. The thing is, things are so much better for them now than they used to be. But we need to teach them the importance of not being overly satisfied to keep going back to Jesus, to keep learning more. I think that's a good tactic that might help us in that type of situation. Most of us here have seen the truth of God's word on certain basic points, the milk as we talked about earlier today. We've confessed Christ. We've seen the need to be baptized into Christ for the remission of our sins. 
Most of us have seen the importance of worshiping God as He has requested. Not entertainment-oriented, but God-oriented. Back to basics, the simple approach. But so often, let's be honest with ourselves. Don't we see signs in ourselves that we, we're still lacking? What are some things we see? So often, we're contended with external acts, and we just don't concern ourselves as much as we should with changing our hearts. I have people say to me, I'm in the one true church, and they're as mean and as nasty as they can be. What's wrong? They haven't gone back to Jesus for the second touch. The emphasis on attendance, acts of public worship. Let's do that. You be here Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. But it's so much more than that. Complete surrender to Christ. That is often overlooked. When there's emphasis primarily on externals and a neglect of the heart. And then worry. What am I going to eat? Well, most of us don't say, what am I going to eat? We know we're going to, we we're going to eat. Maybe a little more. How am I going to pay for that transmission? That's maybe a little, hitting a little closer to home. How am I going to deal with this problem? How am I going to deal with that problem? Sometimes the solution is simply to be more responsible with our spending. And maybe the solution just involves in trusting in Jesus. If God clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Change it up a little bit, little vision. And of course, that's a reference to Matthew 6.30. Then you have the bickering among brethren. I hate to say this, but sometimes I think that my known brethren, and God knows who all of my brethren are, but my brethren I know have been characterized by by things they shouldn't be. Jesus said that his disciples would be known by their love. By this shall all men know you if you have love for one another. And some just haven't gotten that memo yet. It's fussing and fighting and bickering and complaining. Sometimes brethren who know a lot of Bible, who could even quote you large portions in the Greek language, don't know how to get along with their brethren. Constant bickering and strife. The second touch is available. We've missed it if we can't get along with our brethren. We need to go back and look at 1 Corinthians 13 and go down those qualities of love and apply them to ourselves. Remind ourselves, as James said, the wisdom from above is not the way we often are. And avoid those foolish and ignorant disputes knowing that they generate strife. Second touch is available. I've seen this. Opposing divorce, which we must oppose. We must, God hates divorce. We must hate it. But I've seen some who could quote Matthew chapter 19 in the Greek language and they bark at their wives like they were sergeants. Have you ever seen something like that? Something's wrong. If we're going to be against divorce, and we must, we must learn to work on marriage and treating our partners with the love and consideration that God commands. The second touch is often needed, isn't it? And then you have the husbands and wives that can't get along. Selfishness rules in so many homes. 
And yes, we can see the defects of our spouse, but we're completely blind to our own. Maybe we can see men like trees walking regarding our marriage. And then you have the worldly clothing and entertainment. We are surrounded by shallow, empty people who have no concept of where they're from and where they're going. And that concept is reflected in their language, in their entertainment choices, and in their dress. And it's so easy to be affected by them. And the more we allow ourselves to be affected by them, the more shallow our own lives become. The more we are wrapped up in the market. And is it up or is it down? Things have been all over the place the last few weeks. And, and, and the shallow business culture. And the more we feel that compulsion, I don't understand it, to wear the revealing clothes, the tight pants, the tight blouses. And you can name a whole bunch of stuff if you want to. Why do we feel compelled to do that? can't be comfortable. It's because we need the second touch. We've just been too contaminated with the world. We don't have to live shallow lives. We don't have to wear clothing that proclaims shallow to everybody around us who's washing us. We can live deep lives, but we have to go back to Christ for the second touch. The comfortable Christianity. You know, it is a nice routine sometimes. I've, I've been to all these places I'm talking about. I think sometimes you preach a little more diligently about what you need. Sunday morning, get that class ready to go. Sunday night, Wednesday night. That's a kind of a comfort zone sometimes. But what about striving to encourage the preaching of the gospel in the whole world? What about evangelizing our friends, inviting them to some home Bible studies, or inviting them here? What about making some true sacrifices that take us out of our comfort zones? Think of the song, Must I Be Carried to the Skies on Flowery Beds of Ease? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? It's hard for me to pronounce, but you got the point. I think sometimes in my own life, driving the nice rental car down the highway with my XM radio, it's easy. And it's not that it's wrong to be easy, but I've got to be willing to get out of that comfort zone and go and find ways to serve others. Sometimes when there's sin in the church, to do something about it might ruffle some feathers. But we've got to get away from comfortable Christianity and do something about it sometimes. So often, we see. We see, kind of. But it's like we see sometimes men walking like trees. What are some keys to getting the second touch as we close? First of all, we've got to accept that we've got a problem. You know, one of the keys to the man coming to see clearly was saying, and Jesus wanted him to say this for the benefit of the apostles. I see men walking like trees. Everything's not perfect. I need to do something. Something needs to be done about this. And that's the way it is with us, isn't it? Sometimes you've just got to be willing to say You know, things are good, but they need to be better. I need to see better. I'm just too wrapped up in the world and myself. Without confession, there's no healing. 1 John 1, 9. And that's where we fail. As pride just tries to do everything it can to keep us from confessing. But after acknowledging that we have some distorted vision, 
We need to return to Jesus again and again and again. And this is the solution to so many things. It's so easy to go through these. But rededicating ourselves to prayer. A time each day when you and can talk with God, speak with Him. Not, it won't be perfect. Some days you may be a little more distracted than other days. But to work on that, that's going back to Jesus for the second touch. Programming ourselves to read the Bible seriously. You know, it's hard for preachers to admit this, but I will admit to you this has been a challenge in my life. In the last five or ten years, some young men have gotten on my case about it. You get a plan. That's what helps me. To have a plan, not just for getting up sermons or lessons. You have a plan to read so much. You can do it through a year, but you get a plan and you stick with it. That's a way of going back for the second touch. Imitation of Jesus Christ through imitation of those who are close to Him. And seeking help through brethren. We're a family. Let's work with each other and help us to keep that uh, keep from being satisfied to push ourselves to go back to Christ for the second touch. Can we help you with the second touch? What does that mean? It might mean different things to people in different stages of life. If, as I've said, I think everybody here has some level of faith in Christ. But if you've never been washed in the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the second touch for you might mean doing what Saul of Tarsus was told to do. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. If we can help you doing that this morning, we can. Or maybe it means with you, if you've already been washed, but you've allowed yourself to be entangled in the world to the point that you can scarcely see Jesus Christ. With you, it might mean just returning to God. If you want the prayers of the congregation here and the brethren here, I'm sure they would be glad to help you. If we can help you in any way, please let us know. And let's stand now and sing the invitation song.